Welcome to the Calvary Chapel South Bay Sermon Podcast. We are a large, multi-ethnic, multi-generational church in Los Angeles, California, and we'd love to have you visit us for a service if you're in the L.A. area. Visit ccsouthbay.org to learn more about us and to find out service times. If you have any questions, shoot us an email at hello at ccsouthbay.org. Enjoy today's sermon, and we hope to see you at church soon. You'd open up your Bibles and turn to Isaiah chapter 44. Interesting that as we kind of turned the corner, we've headed into the second half of the book of Isaiah, the part that corresponds really with the the good news that's coming into the world. As we get to the New Testament, we see that the Gospels actually begin with a little bit of who God is. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God, and the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. So you can kind of see how here in the book of Isaiah there are some parallels because we find that God is now going to describe who he is and who we are relative to him through the prophet Isaiah. I don't know if you've been uh, as I have. I have tried, as Pastor Alex just said, to stay pretty much uh, out of the news because, frankly, it's irritating. It causes my blood pressure to go up and then it goes back down and I remember who God is. And it, and it kind of looks like a whole series of things that are just, you know, circumstantially what we would call happenstance or chance. But from God's perspective, as far as humankind is concerned, we are actually fashioned by God. We were made in his image. He breathed life into us. He is the controller, the sustainer of all things. And over these next several chapters, we're going to see many of God's characteristics. But he fashioned us. He made us. He knows us. There there are no accidents in God's economy. We look at things as accidental, or we look at things as having been manipulated by mankind. But from God's perspective... He sees us as having been fashioned from cradle to grave. He knows everything about you. He he knows everything that your life will ever be, all that you will ever do, every place you'll ever go, every circumstance that touches you, every circumstance that you willingly engage in, those things that touch you for no fault of your own. You're fashioned by God. The nation Israel is going to learn that lesson over the next several chapters. And while I attempted to to cover more than one chapter tonight, we're not going to. It just simply would take too long uh, in our allotted time. So we're going to cover chapter 44. But again, I draw your attention to the fact that chapter 44 is a designation that was put in there by man. And really this whole narrative goes into the next chapter, what we call chapter 45 as well. And so the, the authors, the, the authors who translated the original text into English, in our case, but uh, prior to that into Greek and then into Latin and German and English, and as the tr- Latin, the languages trans- transitioned uh, to help us find our place and to help us understand things in a fairly clear way, they, they put chapter breaks in there. This happens to be one of those ones that probably shouldn't be there. But it would make for a very, very, very long chapter if it were not there, much like you find in John chapter 7 and 8. And if you look at John chapter 7 and 8, you don't need to turn there, but I'll just tell you what happens. Uh, The last words of John 7 are, every man went to his own house. 
There's a period. But that's actually not what it says. In the original language, it says, every man went to his own house, but Jesus went to the Mount of Olives. So that very clearly is a continuing thought that goes right into chapter 8. That's the same thing that we have here in chapter 44, 45, and 46. And so as we look at this, we need to look at God giving us a message that has a singular understanding. And you're going to see a lot of things about who God is over the next several chapters. And they're very encouraging things, things that we should remind ourselves. They're contrasts, things that we should not do, things that we should not be things that we should not entertain, things that we should think about correctly, and he gives us the right way to think on them. And so we'll pick up in verse 1, but before we do that, let's pray and ask God to speak to us. Father, we thank you. Lord, I thank you for the beauty of your word and how it ministers to me every single time I pick it up and read it. Lord, if we were to come tonight and just simply read these words, penned by the prophet Isaiah, inspired by the Holy Spirit, authored really through you, uh, through your prophets, as they wrote, holy men of old wrote these things down as you spoke to them. We pray that you'd speak to us. And so we give you our ears, our minds, Lord, our tongues, let us be silent and, and learn of you tonight, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen and amen. So the translator is helping us give us this picture, and we're going to take just the chunk that they gave us tonight. So we'll take the, the appropriate break at the end of the chapter, uh, but know that it really continues to our study next week as well. There's a couple of things that it begins with here, and I think it's really important. The prophet Jeremiah in chapter 25 and verse 11 uh, had actually told the children of Israel that their captivity would be exactly 70 years. And that's important because that's a very, very specific period of time that would have transcended a generation of people. And were there any differentiation in that 70 years, and someone could have said then and we could say now, that perhaps the Bible is inaccurate or it contains some inconsistencies or maybe it's not worthy of being treated as truth. And unfortunately, our world is filled with people who do not look at the Bible as inerrant they don't look at it as truth. They look at it largely as a book uh, maybe of history or of culture, uh, sometimes of just good suggestions or maybe moral living. But the Bible is truth. And again, we have some archaeological evidence that can help us with this. And as people have tried to judge these particular dates that are given here, fortunately, we have scripture and we have archaeology to help us out once again. And after some careful calculation from a Jewish point of reckoning on these 70 years, uh, we can figure out exactly when this was because we have the tomb of Cyrus. We're going to see that next time. We know exactly when he lived. We know when he came. We know when he was born. And in fact, the Babylonians, much like the Assyrians, were very, very accomplished in keeping great records uh, of the things that they did throughout their uh, time that they were the ruling power on the face of the earth. And so during the time that this was written, which is recorded for us in 2 Kings chapter 24, uh, there in verses 12 to 16, um, we, we're told about a specific king, King Jeconiah, or Jehoiakim, the king of Judah. 
And he was captured by King Nebuchadnezzar. And so we have this recorded in Scripture. We know when this was. And so as you think on this, after the Jewish captives arrived in Babylon, the prophet Jeremiah writes to them, and he reminds them again that the days of their captivity in Jeremiah 29.10, that after the 70 years had been accomplished in Babylon, that the Lord would visit them. And he would perform their goodwill towards them, causing them to return. So if we can get the exact date of the return of the Jewish people back after the Babylonian captivity, and we can look at 70 years, and we can find out and see whether this king that's coming, King Cyrus, was the real deal or not. Unfortunately, thanks to the Iraqi National Archives, uh, we actually have uh, what are called the Babylonian Chronicles. And so if you have the app out and you're looking at those, you can look on, these are very easy to find. Uh, you can go to the Iraq, Iraqi National Archives and look up the Babylonian Chronicles. There is actually a short synopsis within them on these clay tablets, not once, not twice, but three times, that mentions very specifically this city of Judah, the king of Judah, Jehoiakim, and the choice king that would come after him, Zedekiah. So it wedges history in a non-biblical source in some tablets that we can go look at and say, well, what are those dated to and who was the king? And it corresponds perfectly with 2 Kings chapter 24. And in fact, to the date, we can identify March 10th of 597 BC on our calendar as the date of the reign of Nebuchadnezzar. So it anchors us to the history of what is said in your Bible. And some of you are going, well, you know, that's okay. Well, look at it this way. Now imagine that God is about to tell us the name of a king who won't even be born for 185 years. And he's going to name him by name. And he's going to talk about what he will do. And then we're going to find out that his exploits are recorded in the annals of history, again in these same tablets. And then you're going to find that the people of, of Iraq, and very specifically the people of Iran because that's where Cyrus's tomb is located, in 2013, they actually made a national holiday of the birthday of King Cyrus. So your Bible has this historical context that you can look at and say, this is not just a bunch of junk that was made up by some old dude and somebody put it in the ground someplace and we dug it up and we kind of hope it's true. The history around this particular passage of Scripture is solidly anchored in archaeological fact. And so we can look these people up, not just in our Bibles, but in museums around the world. And so as the year was changing, we'll find in Second Chronicles 36, on the Judean calendar, it's going to be the first of Nisan. That's when the year changed and the king was announced. So we have a Judean calendar and a Babylonian calendar matching the exact same day and the exact same period of time uh, that King Cyrus of Persia, whom we'll see in 2 Chronicles 36 and the books of Ezra, uh, and Nehemiah, he'll be mentioned as well, uh, that Cyrus is going to come and conquer Babylon in the first year of his reign. And so Cyrus, my shepherd that we meet in this chapter, uh, is, is a person that we know is real. We know what he did. We know how he did it. We know the kings that were involved and they are all found within the context of the Bible that you hold in your lap. 
so you can look at it as truth that is well anchored in historical fact. Interestingly enough, this particular chapter begins in verse 1, and we'll get there in just a second, that God is forming and he is making or made Israel. These are the same two words that are used in Genesis chapters 1 and 2. And the reason they're important is because they're not the same as created. Made and formed are both a Hebrew root uh, of a word that principally means to take something that is already in existence and to exercise control over it in such a way that it is formed exactly the way you want it. In other words, you would make or form a piece of pottery. Everybody understand that? But you did not create the dirt, you did not create the clay, you simply took what existed and made it into something. In this case, God does both, but he's focusing in on what he's doing with Israel. And this is where it touches you. Because God is making and forming you as well. He's making and forming every living, breathing on this planet because when he made Adam, he made Adam in his likeness and in his image. And then scripture further says that he literally breathed life into him and gave him a connection that we call the spirit. That's the difference between us and animals. Animals have a consciousness, they have thinking, they have emotion but they do not have the spirit of the living God in them. Now, I happen to believe that there's a possibility that my Labrador does actually have the spirit of the living God in her because she looks at me sometimes and I'm wondering, she's got some kind of connection going on right there. But the fact of the matter is, humankind, the Bible says, was made differently than all of the rest of the things on this earth that we would call animal life. And so God breathed the Ruach Elohim into us, the very breath of God. That's where we connect with him. That's how we know him. His spirit connects with our spirit. That's that's where that transaction occurs. And so now God is going to say, well, I made you, and I formed you after I breathed life into you. And this is where it is important for us tonight. Because God's still making and forming all things that pertain to us. He still has control over the universe. He hasn't taken his hands off of anything He's the potter with his hands on the wheel. He knows exactly what kind of pots are going to come off of it. He knows who our next president is. We don't, right? He knows who's going to govern civilly, but he's still the king who's making and forming us. He's the one that still has control finally over everything. And he doesn't make mistakes. He doesn't mess up. He doesn't have cast off. He doesn't have throwaways. Everything God does, he does, he says, what he does is good, right? There's no place in scripture where God says, oh, man, I messed up. You, you see, we're going to see that in this chapter. Verse one, and it begins this way. Yet hear me now, O Jacob, my servant. And again, it goes back to the picture of the servant. That will be the Lord, the Messiah, and Israel are seen as similar in that way, though not exactly the same, but similar. And Israel, and remember, Jacob is Jacob's name before he has a name change and is called Israel. And so the second name, and Israel, whom I have chosen, 
So Jacob is the man. Israel is all of his 12 sons. That's the Jewish people. So you can look at the progenitor of and then all of the people. He's speaking of the Jewish people. He's speaking of Israel, whom I have chosen. They're his chosen people. And in a very similar way in Christ Jesus, we have been chosen. We have been elected. Though we are not the same as national Israel, we don't have the same promises given to us that they do. They have a few additional goodies that have been promised to the Jewish people, and it includes a land. It includes a special place that they are indeed the apple of God's eye. That he has his hand on them throughout eternity. Even in their rebellion and disobedience, God has, has chosen Israel. For thus says the Lord who made you and formed you. And I want you to notice this. Where did he do that from? The womb. For the person that believes that from God's perspective, he thinks that life begins at 18 months or two years old or whenever you can be cognizant in your thinking or perhaps your life has value or you've had experience and now you matter. The Bible plainly states that life begins at conception and that God knows you from the womb. That is why we as God's people believe in the sanctity of life. We believe that life, all life, is precious to God because it is God who's taking that which he created. He created man and he makes and forms every single human being. And every human being has value. Inside of the womb, it has value. That's why when some people question, well, you know, I, I'm not sure I, you know, I really agree with this whole... Pro if, I don't know how a Christian, I don't know how a believer can be anything but pro-life. Amen. Amen? Why do I say that? Because sometimes people get confused and they think, well, I can, I can have these ideas and I can have these ideas and that still equals having the same viewpoint as God. God's viewpoint is life begins at inception, conception. It, it, it exists in the womb and in fact, scripture is replete with examples. The 139th Psalm is chief among them. I knew you, I formed your inward parts. Now, if I want, this is the reason I'm telling you this. If God takes notice of you when you are embryonic, when you haven't had life experience, when you haven't touched anyone else's life, when you haven't come forth and no one knows you yet, but he knows you, how much value do you think you have once you have exited the womb and you have become known and you do have experience and you are connected to other people, your value simply in God's perspective has always been of the highest order. But for the rest of us, your value adds value to the rest of us. You matter to God and you matter to the body of Christ. You've been made and formed by him for a specific purpose. And so if you came here tonight and you think you don't matter, you matter. God loves you. He fashioned you for a purpose.
He has plans for your life, and the Bible says those plans are good. That you have a future and a hope in him. He hasn't fashioned you for evil. He fashioned you for good. One of the things that troubles me about our, civil, our in-civil discourse that we're having now in the public square is it devalues human life, and human life is precious to God. God is not pleased when we shout at each other and yell at each other and we don't care for one another and we say vile, mean, evil things to each other. That is not okay with God because we were made in him, his image, created by him from the womb. Who will help you? Fear not, O my servant Jacob, and you, O Jeshurun, whom I have chosen. That, that word, that name, Jeshurun, means upright. God's always chosen the upright. Now, good news for us is grace that makes us upright, amen? That's who he is. You see, this is really God being God. This is God telling us who he is. What a name that is, that God chooses the upright. And he not only chooses the upright, but he chooses us to be upright, to walk uprightly, to uphold the things that he has desire for in this world. We're supposed to be salt and light. We're supposed to be showing other people what it's like to come in contact with the true and the living God. Our lives are supposed to be so upright that other people see that and they go, oh, that's what God's like. They were fashioned, God's servants, notice it here, are fashioned and made in his image and called as the upright ones. Very similar word in root to the sanctified ones or the saintly ones. People who have been chosen, selected, set apart is what the, the Greek word hagios means. It means to be set apart for a specific purpose. If God fashioned us and God made us and he set us apart for a specific purpose, do you think he has a plan for your life? The answer is yes. Yes, he does. You're not here tonight by accident. You may have thought, maybe you came with somebody. They invited you to church. And you thought, well, you know, I don't have anything else going on tonight. There's no baseball. There's no basketball. Football's not till Sunday. No, you're not here by accident. You may see it that way. You may have seen it as a last-minute detail of your life, but from God's perfect purposes of forming and making you, he chose you before the foundation of the world to be right here, right now, to study this particular chapter of the book of Isaiah. God knows what he's doing. For I will pour water on him who is thirsty and floods on dry ground. Man, do we need the water of the word and of the Holy Spirit right now in this world. You talk about dry and thirsty. I said I had to just turn the news off, so I'm, I'm reading the ramping up of all the COVID restrictions all over the country, all over the world for that matter. All the craziness that's going on. You know, the infighting amongst people. You know, and there's an interesting thing. Maybe you've experienced this. I know I have. There is virtually no one on this earth that if you remove all the rhetoric out of our lives, you take all of your extreme positions and all of my extreme positions, and we just sit down and we talk, I haven't met a person yet that I can't talk to on the face of the earth. Not one. I've met some people that maybe don't like who I am or maybe what I stand for. But God wants us to be able to communicate with one another, and so he's fashioned us in his image. He's made us, all of us. And he wants us to be part of that quenching flood of water, living water, 
that spills out, spills out on this dry ground. For I will pour out my spirit on your descendants and my blessing on your offspring. And they'll spring up like grass, like willows in the water courses. I don't know how many of you have ever experienced uh, walking through a, a Sierra stream bed and see how quickly the willows grow back after every single winter. Every winter, they get mashed down, they get, the snow just flattens them, they look dead, they're crushed into the creek bottom, and then by mid-spring, they're back to six, seven foot tall, they come right back. You know what the secret is? The water in the water course. During winter, you would think it'd be wet, but it's not. It's just cold. It's actually dry. And so they're not getting water, but as soon as that spring melt comes and the water flows, the life goes back into them. The life of the believer is through the word of God, by the spirit of God. And as that's poured out into our world through his servants, in this case Israel, in our case God's people through the word, as that goes out, it causes life. Or one will say, I am the Lord's. And another will call himself by the name of, name of Jacob. Now, now, Jacob was not a great name. It meant heel catcher or schemer. But the picture here is another will write on his hand, the Lord's, and name himself after the name of Israel. That's a good one, governed by God. And ultimately, all heel catchers who want to be can be governed by God. So if you came tonight and you were a schemer, a heel catcher, the good news is if you want to have a name change, God is very willing to give that to you. He's very willing to accept you by grace and through faith in Christ Jesus and change your name from whatever it is that means something in this world to what it means in heaven, which is governed by God. That's what Lord actually means ultimately. So when you say Jesus Christ is my Lord, you're saying Jesus, Yahoshua, our God who is salvation, that's what his name means, Christ, Christos, the Messiah, the anointed one, is my Lord. So he is Yahweh Adonai. He's my master. He, he, he is the one whom governs my life. Because he saved my life. And he made my life. And he's forming my life. And my life is supposed to look a whole lot like him. You see, that's the, that's the goal of growing in Christ Jesus. And it was the goal that Israel had set before them. God is telling them, this is who I am. This is me being me. Notice verse 6, for thus says the Lord, the King of Israel, and his Redeemer, the Lord of hosts. I am the first and I am the last, and besides me there is no God. Anybody remember that that's in the Bible someplace else? You might know it as the, the last book, the first chapter of the last book. What does, what does Jesus call himself? I am the first and I am the last. I am the Alpha, I am the Omega, the beginning, the end. Before anything else was, he was. He's the uncaused cause of everything else. He's the, greater, he's the thing that's greater than all things that exist. He's the one that dwells outside of space and time that can create all things. He's the one that can then, after he creates forms and shapes and makes and molds. And so he's basically telling us about himself. And notice he's speaking in two persons here. He first says, the king of Israel and his redeemer. Well, who's the redeemer? Obviously, that's two people. The redeemer is one who pays the price for someone else. 
And so God is speaking out of space and outside of time and reminding the children of Israel the same thing that he would ultimately tell the church. I am the Alpha, the Omega, the beginning, the end, the one who was and is and is to come, the Almighty. Amen? That's what he's saying. He's telling the Jewish people, look, I'm the beginning, I'm the end. When everything else is gone, I'm still going to be here. What a truth for us right now. In the crazy, mixed-up world that we live in, all the uncertainty, there is a certainty that we have as the body of Christ that the world does not know that we should share. And that is there is a king, and he is holy, enthroned in heaven, and cannot be moved. He is the Almighty. He's the one that was. And he's the one that is. And he is the one that's still coming again. Amen? That's why when Pastor Roush was saying, we did not talk before service. He had no idea anything that's in my notes, especially if it isn't in Isaiah chapter 44, which he surely knew. But that's that connection. Our eyes have to be up, not down. They have to be heaven bound. We have to do what Paul said to the church at Colossae, to to get our, our mind off of the earth and onto heavenly things why Jesus, as he speaks there in Revelation chapter 1, says, look, I was here before you, and I'm going to be after every other human being. They stop having kids on earth. I'm still going to be me. It's God being God. Verse 7, who can proclaim as I do? Now, I just gave you a little bit of confirmation historically Now, I don't know about how good you are at prognostication. Um, There's some pretty bad prognosticators politically in our country right now. Uh, They don't have any idea what's going to happen. Can't tell you who's going to win, who's going to lose, who's in, who's out. They can't tell you any of that stuff. You know what's crazy? I have not yet found a single thing that God has said that if its time has come, has not come to pass exactly as he said it would. Who can proclaim as I do? And kind of challenging. God's bragging on himself a little bit, I guess you could say. Kind of, kind of putting his name out there. It's like, okay. Then let him declare it. Set it in order for me. Why don't you tell me how it's going to go down is what he's going to say. He's like, hey, if you guys are so smart. And he's going he's to talk to them about what they actually do, which I think is really interesting in this particular chapter. Why don't you set in order? Since I appointed the ancient people, since, since I called Assyria to chasten, I called Babylon to chase, and I caused Cyrus to come and go through the gates of Babylon since I appointed the ancient peoples. I told you about them before they ever came. Since I'm the one that spoke to Pharaoh, I went down and had Moses stutterer go talk to the Pharaoh. I'm the one that took them to the edge of the Red Sea and delivered them. Since I did all that, let's just have a little battle of wits right now, you might be saying. Since I appointed the the ancient people and the things that are coming and shall come, let them show these to them. Don't fear, don't be afraid. Have I not told you from that time and declared it? You are my witnesses. Is there a God besides me? He's basically saying, look, 
I've proven myself to you. How many here tonight have had God prove themselves to them? I have. He has proven himself faithful over and over and over and over and over again. I have watched him do miraculous things for decades. I've seen him move in ways that I thought were utterly impossible. Only to step back and have to repent of my lack of faith. God, you are who you say you are. And you do what you say you will do. I've watched him save people. I have watched him save lives. I have seen him perform miracles. God alone is God. Indeed, there is no other rock. I know not one. All other rocks are sinking sand. Amen? Compared to the king, where are you going to stand? You know, if your hope was in the presidential election, I'm guessing your, your rock is a little mushy right now. Seriously. If your hope was in, you know, all the things that are going on in the earth somehow turning around and everything being rosy, I'm guessing you're a little fearful tonight. But if your hope is in the rock, he's still the rock. He's still the rock. It's going to be okay. You're going to be all right. We're going to be all right. And those who make an image, all of them are useless. Now, I love this. Because now God is kind of going, okay, let's talk about this a little bit. Let's talk about the the gods that you make yourself. Your self-made gods. Now, I don't know how many of you are DYIers. If you're a DYIer, you don't have to raise your hand. But if you're a DYIer, you like to do things yourself. You you like to pick out those projects and accomplish them. Uh, There are many of us, I think, that would say, yes and amen, we like to do that. And have you ever noticed that sometimes your projects don't exactly turn out like you see on the Home Depot channel? Yeah, it kind of doesn't work quite that way, right? Or better yet, if you happen to be like I have, my grandfather, who's gone home to be with the Lord, was a master woodcarver. And in fact, in his house, he he left here in Southern California uh, back in the early 1960s. He sold off all of our property, which now is uh, where you might find Fashion Valley in San Diego. We used to actually range cattle down there. So it gives you an idea how long ago that was. But when he left, he decided he'd take his bunny and run to Wyoming. And so he decided one winter that having regular baseboard in his house and crown molding in his house was not exactly going to make his house stand out. So he decided to begin in one corner of the room and carve an Indian Native American hunting scene all the way around the entire basement of his home, which was about two and a half thousand square feet just in the basement. He had everything. He had rabbits and deer and elk and Native American people and cowboys and cattle and ranches and little buildings. And you wander around the room and you're like, what is that? I can't 
well, I can carve snakes. So I just take a piece of wood, I carve a head on one end and a rattle on the other. It's a snake now. God's a master at everything. What he does, he does with perfection and precision. And so God's establishing himself as the other side of what he's now going to describe. He said, besides me, there is no other God. But those who make an image, all of them are useless. Their precious things shall not profit. They are their own witness. In other words, when they tell a story, they're the one that determines whether it's true or not. Kind of sounds like politics right now, right? And I'm not actually picking on anybody, but isn't that how it goes? It's like, it's truth. If I say it's truth and I just make up whatever I want, that's truth. That's today's news. And then tomorrow, that's not true. Something else is true. They're their own witnesses. They neither see nor do they know that they may be ashamed. They're not even ashamed that they don't get it, that they don't see it, that it isn't true. For who would form a God or mold an image that profits him nothing? And surely all his companions would be ashamed, and the workmen, well, they're mere men. Let them be gathered together, let them stand up, yet they shall fear, they shall be ashamed together. For as the blacksmith with the tongs, when his work is done in the coals, he fashions it with hammers and works it with the strength of his arms. Even so, he is hungry and his strength fails. He drinks no water and he's faint. In other words, you know, we human beings, even if we're good at something, we have our limits. We got to take breaks, right? One of the things that's hit me as I've gotten older, I I am that guy that when I was in, I'd say my mid-50s or so, I pretty much go all day, every day, and, you know, at the end of the day, I'd get a good night's rest, get up and get, do it all over again. Seven days a week was okay. Now, sometimes it's not seven hours a day, and it's surely not seven days a week, and, and it's like, you know, honey, right now, the, the lemonade's sounding really good. You know, you have your human limitations. Your strength fails. The craftsman stretches out his rule. He marks it out with chalk. He fashions it with the plane. He marks it out with a compass. And then he makes it like the figure of a man, according to the beauty of man, that it may remain in the house. Now, I don't know if you find the humor in this that I do. It's like the best that man can do is make things that are kind of like us. We look at things, and, and, and look, I am fascinated by man's ability to, to fabricate all kinds of things. Technology, medical sciences, it's boggling to the mind. I mean, we are very, very creative. We've come a very, very, very long way in a very short period of time, if you want to look at it that way. But compared to God, we're like a bunch of dudes sitting around a campfire carving wooden snakes going, look, I'm a woodcarver. You know, it's like compared to God. Oh, no, Jeff, that's a stick. I made the stick, by the way. So you really didn't do anything. It was already kind of curvy like a snake is. You just, you made a mouth on one end and a tail on the other end and you think you're doing something great. That's how God sees the accomplishments of mankind. He sees the skyline of New York or downtown Los Angeles looks at our new stadium and goes, I can do that with uh, 
well, two nanoseconds. God's not impressed. We make our own little gods and we worship those things. We make cars. Any of you seen the new electric Hummer? Oh my. <laughs> Pretty nice. Zero to 60 and I think 3.4 seconds. That's pretty fast for a vehicle that weighs three tons. You know, it's pretty awesome. God created stars. The speed of light. You know, he decides to set something in motion. He can go past it. He can do warp speed. He can transcend space. He can transcend time. And we're going, oh, look what we made. Made a Hummer, electric one. Batteries can go 400 miles. God said, well, yeah, I, I made stars. They burn out in, you know, 10 or 12 billion years. <laughs> They're thermonuclear fission engines. <laughs> it's like, but that's how we think. We think anthropomorphically. We look at it and, well, compared to us, this is awesome. And it is compared to us. But compared to God, mm, not so much. We make things that look just like us. We mold little gods. Sometimes they're cars. Sometimes they're our money. And God looks at it, you're just collecting stuff that can stay in your house. I can do better than that. Interestingly enough, recently, as they've been excavating what's called the Hill of Ophel in Jerusalem, which when you travel Jerusalem, the most famous part that all of you are no doubt familiar with is the Temple Mount, which actually the thing that you normally look at has nothing to do with God's people. It has everything to do with Islam. That's the Dome of the Rock Mosque. That's the Temple Mount. It's this platform that by some accounts is maybe 32 acres. But below that on the south side, heading towards the Hinnom Valley, so the Brook Kidron is on the east. That's where the eastern gate, Jesus is going to come back. But on the south side is actually the city of David. So it's not actually on the Temple Mount. It was never there. It was always below there. But there was a, a city, a little town, if you will, called Ophel. means the hill. The hill of the king or Zion. And so as they've been excavating in there, there's actually a bus parking lot that they excavated. They've been digging down. They have found hundreds Hundreds of foreign gods. They're all little tiny figures, usually between two to five inches tall. Some of them are made out of precious things, even a couple that were silver and had some gold on them, a lot of stone. But a vast majority of them are made out of, what do you think? Wood. They, they carved a god. It has two eyes. It's got a mouth and two ears. And they put that in their house. Why? Because that's the gods, the Canaanites, the people that inhabited the region that God told them to kick out of his holy city, that's who the Canaanites worshipped. And the Jewish people, instead of looking at the Temple Mount, which was right above them, by the way, a few hundred yards away, instead of looking at the temple and, and seeing this pillar of fire and clouds, so there's a pillar of fire by night and a cloud by day marking the holy of holies where the presence of God dwelt between the two cherubim, they were going, well, the Canaanites got little gods they can take home. 
And so they carved themselves all these little images. And they stuck them in their house. And it's like, well, just in case the thing with the guy up there on the hill with the, with the fire, in case that doesn't work out, I'm going to keep these little gods. And so as they excavate the, the hill that, that is now below street level and some of the streets in Jerusalem, as they're excavating, they're finding all kinds of stuff. And basically it ties into this very period of time when God is chastising the children because this is where they actually were trapped. They're inside of the city walls, the old city walls, not the temple mount, the city walls. And so they're carving little gods. When they have the God of heaven and earth speaking to them directly, like, well, you know, I'll just carve it. How dumb is that? You talk about the stupidity of worshiping things that cannot do anything for you. So do you think that money and power and drugs and sexual relationships and experiences and fame and possessions and popularity, you think those things are as good as God? And yet we carve those things and we take them into our homes. We make them part of our life. Notice verse 14. So here's the workman. So the workman's gotten done. He's been molding and shaping and doing all these things. He's going, man, we're awesome. We are so good at this. He cuts down cedars for himself and then takes down the cypress and the oak and he secures it for himself among the trees of the forest. And then he plants a pine and the rain nourishes it. Now I want you to notice something. The pine is an inferior tree compared to the first two trees. So you've got a cypress, very dense, very hard, grows very slow, especially in the Mediterranean. Mediterranean cypress is very dense. It's a good wood. The oak, also very hard, very dense, long-lasting. And he says, well, that's kind of hard to work with. So he plants a pine. Any of you know what pine is known for? It is the softest of all of the woods that we generally use in woodworking. So if you want to make something fast, you want to make something quick, you want to be able to sand it easy, you want to be able to work with it, you you want to be able to buy it cheap, you make it out of pine. That's why when somebody says, well, I hope they bury me in a pine box, that's like saying, I hope they bury me in cardboard. So that's what's going on here, and it's important to get this. He plants pine, and the rain nourishes it. And then it shall be for a man to burn. Don't you love this? For he will take some of it and warm himself. Yes, he kindles it, and he bakes bread, and indeed makes a god and worships it. Is that the dumbest thing you've ever heard? It's like, I had good hardwood. I could have made something at last but it was going to take too long. So I planted a pine, and this is a multi-purpose wood. I can warm myself, I can cook on it, and I can carve a god out of it. That's people. That's how dumb we can be sometimes. We worship things that are fast and easy, take no effort, and don't last. Understand? You get it? You see what God's saying here? He's going, don't worship things that are fast, 
and easy and don't last. That's what the children of Israel were trying to do. He says, look, I formed you. I made you. Now notice where it goes. It gets worse. He makes it a carved image, and he worships it. He falls down to it. The Hebrew word here would be shakah. He literally falls prostrate before it and worships a piece of pine. Yikes. And he burns half of it in the fire. And with the other half, he eats meat. And he roasts the roast, and he's satisfied. And the word there that's translated satisfied means he's completely enraptured with what he's done. It's like, oh, man. I know it's after dinner. It's like you go and you get that tomahawk, T-bone, porterhouse thing, this giant piece of meat, and you're now going to worship the barbecue it was cooked on. It's like, wow, what a smoker. It's nuts. It's crazy. He even warms himself and says, ah, I've warm. I'm warm. I've seen the fire. And the rest he makes into a god, a carved image. It's just like, I hope you can get the humor here. It's like, I'm going to make a god and I'm going to worship it. And then I'm going to barbecue it. And then I'm going to make another god out of it. Now I'm going to bring it into my house. Yeah, that's God. God's already said, look, I'm the first and the last. I'm the beginning and the end. I'm the one who was and is and is to come. I'm the unchangeable one. Well, I'd like to have a pine tree, please. That's what you're doing when you trade anything for the Lord. That's what you're doing. You're saying, I'd rather have a pine tree. Thank you very much. We used to chop an awful lot of firewood when I was a director at the camp. We'd have to put, you know, usually up 8 to 20 cords for a winter. Now, for those of you who don't know, a cord is 4 foot by 4 foot by 8 foot long, cut, stacked, and dried. If that was oak, you could get by with 2 or 3. If it was pine, you needed 10. 15. Why? Burns just like that. We used to call our fireplace at our house in Running Springs the wood vacuum. You throw wood in it, gone, if it was pine. Helps to understand this. He falls down before it and worships it and prays to it and says, deliver me for you are my God. Man. You know, our people still do this. They worship trees. They worship humpback whales, dolphins. They worship the creation. Exactly what the Apostle Paul said in Romans chapter 1 would be despicable in the eyes of the Lord. For the wrath of God, verse 18 of Romans 1, is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppresses the truth in unrighteousness. Well, the truth is trees are not God. God is God. You ever wanted a passage to back that up? This is it. There's no worshiping trees. They don't have souls. They can't talk. They are not created in the image of God. 
They don't have feelings. They don't even have a consciousness. And yet, sometimes, we would rather people die. It's not okay with God. Why? Because what may be known of God is manifest in them, for God has shown it to them. For since the creation of the world, there it is, the baras, that which is created from nothing, since the creation, since God said there was and there was, there is and there is, since God said let it be, And it therefore was, since God created everything that is out of nothing, since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes, who he is, what he is, how he works, his microscopic detail to order out of chaos, his ability to create things from nothing and make them then form and shape into all kinds of other things. You realize that your genetic material that you're made out of is absolutely unique to you, but it is also not unique to almost all of the rest of animal life. That's why people have become so befuddled. Because your DNA is very similar to chimpanzee DNA, but you are not a chimp. There is no such thing as a transition from goo to you. You are fearfully and wonderfully made in the image of God. You're not an accident. And you are far superior to all other created things. Both in value and in the fact that you are eternal and they are not. There's only one thing on the whole face of the earth that is actually eternal, that will transition from this life to the next, and that is humankind. All of us, saved or not saved, are going to transition to eternity. The only question is where. Which abode will you dwell in? We'll get to that in just a couple of weeks as we study through the Gospel of Luke. But notice this. Invisible attributes. We didn't Paul certainly didn't know that. There was no microscope. There was no telescope. There was no microbiology. There was no study of atomic particles or even molecular things, much less atomic things at that time. Not even the larger building blocks of life, amino acids and proteins. Certainly knew nothing about DNA. The invisible attributes. God said, look, I'm going to show you some things eventually so that when you see them, you're going to see how complex they actually are and you're going to worship me because you're going to know that these things did not happen by chance. That design implies designer and if there is a design, there must be a designer and if there's a designer, you better want to know who he is. That's the whole point that Paul's making here. being understand, understood by the things that were, what was that word that we saw in verse 1? Made. Not created. This is shifting now. It's like, look at the diversity of what God has done with what he created. Anybody else stunned by the diversity of life on this planet? You know, there are two and a half 
thousand species of frogs? Frogs. Frogs. And some of them are deadly poisonous. You might want to know which ones those are. You really don't want your kids bringing home a poison dart frog. Look, mom, it's purple. By the things that are made. You ever looked at a Venus flytrap or a pitcher plant and wondered, how did that happen that they dissolve bugs? Even as eternal power and Godhead, so that they're without excuse. Because although they knew God, they did not glorify him. Does that sound familiar to our passage in Isaiah? They're busy bowing down to a piece of wood that they cooked on in the morning, ate off of in the afternoon, and worshipped in the evening. That's what people are still doing. They're going, oh, yeah, I'm going to worship, you know, I'm going to worship the, the trees. Look, I was one of those people. I, I'm at heart, I am actually kind of an eco-nut. I'm just an eco-nut that loves Jesus and realizes that no matter how much I love the Sierras, I can't get saved by going to the Sierras like John Muir taught. One of his famous sayings, going to the mountains is going home. No, it's not. Going to the mountains is going to the mountains. It's not home. It's below zero in the backcountry of the Sierras during the winter. You're going to freeze to death. Beautiful in the summer. And then the mosquitoes come and eat you alive, which I still have not figured out why God allowed them to exist. There are some things that still stun us. Nor were they thankful, but they became futile in their thinking, their thoughts. Their foolish hearts were darkened. Professing themselves to be wise, they became fools, and they changed the glory of the incorruptible God into the image like corruptible man, exactly what Isaiah said 700 years earlier. Birds, four-footed animals, creeping things. How tragic is it when our rebellion against God causes us to worship things other than him? That's what he's saying. And so God's saying, don't do that. It's a rebellion against God to worship anything other than him. We were created to worship him, to glorify him. That's our, that's our deepest purpose and meaning. Sometimes people ask you, oh, I don't know what my purpose is. Your purpose, your purpose, ultimately, is to bring glory and honor to the one who created you. That's where your deepest longing always is. That's why people are always looking for that thing to stuff in their life and if it's not Jesus, it's something else. And they start to worship that other thing. That's why you see so many people searching after things that can't fulfill. They look for the next relationship. They look for the next million. They look for the next bigger house or the next bigger car. Or the next promotion. Or the next power trip. The next thing where they're going to be the top of the food chain. So they think... Let me just give you a clue. You're never the top of the food chain while you're here on this earth. You're well below. There's several pay grades above yours. And they're, they're occupied by the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen? 
And so to that, because this blindness that they willingly engage in has its limits, God says, I've got my limits too. I'm not going to let you do this forever. Verse 18. For they do not know, nor do they understand, for he... You have a new King James. You'll notice that he is capitalized. There's a reason for that, because this is God acting. He is very clearly God himself has shut their eyes so that they cannot see, and their hearts so they cannot understand. How sad is that? And I I want to just say something. I don't want to elaborate on it too terribly much. But this same principle is found in John's Gospel in chapter 12. You can look for it yourself. It says, therefore, they could not believe Jesus speaking. And it references the prophet Isaiah. There comes a point in time when man has chosen what he is going to choose and his heart becomes hardened. And God then agrees with the assessment of the human heart and makes it so you cannot any longer believe. Now, you may not like hearing that, but there's a reason for it, I believe. It should should strike a chord in the heart of man that if I continue to fiddle around with sin, if I continue to worship the wrong God, if I continue to carve images in my own image, if I give myself to another and I do it habitually and perpetually, God eventually says, if that's what you want, That's what you get. Now, here's the problem. I don't know when that is for anybody, and neither do you. I only know that the Bible clearly teaches it. And so while God is gracious and he's not willing that any should perish, there does come a point in time where God recognizes the hardness of the human heart, and so he, as he did with Pharaoh, God hardened Pharaoh's heart. So if you're going to keep going that way for the sake of other people on this planet, I'm going to give you over to a debased mind. Exactly what Paul taught in Romans chapter 1. You want it, you got it. You can go there. You, You can harden your heart to the extent that God says, I know where this is going. This is you. You don't want to be there and you do not want anybody else going there. That's why the church is supposed to speak against sin. That's why the church cannot capitulate to sinful things. When Bible teaches authoritatively about something being sinful, that is the opinion the church is supposed to have. It is not negotiable. Do you understand what I just said? It's not negotiable. You don't get to call your own shots in the body of Christ. God calls the shots. That's why Jesus is both Savior and Lord. He's master. He's the one that dictates how we are supposed to live. And if before you come to Christ, you engage in those things and you give yourself over to them repetitively and you finally get to that place to where you're going to drag other people into your mess, God is actually actually acting graciously by turning you over to those things so that only you will be destroyed by your actions. So be very careful that you do not take up the cause, well, I'm saved by grace through faith, so I can do anything I want. No, you cannot. You cannot. Doesn't mean that God's grace isn't there for your for, for forgiveness. It is. 
Doesn't mean that he won't go many, 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 many miles with you. He will. But it does mean that God has his limits. And we don't know where those limits are. So don't test the limits. That's the message. When you know what God's word says, just do it. It's real simple. Every once in a while, I'll get a, especially young people, they like to debate these types of things. Well, you know, I don't know, I don't know that I want to do that yet. You go, well, I don't know if you want to go to heaven. <laughs> They'll look at me like, well, you know, salvation is by grace and through faith. I go, yes, it is. But how do you know that you're saved? How is it that you can equate those things that you know are not okay with God, that you do them anyway, and you willingly thumb your nose at God and say, yeah, I don't care. How do you know that you're saved? I'm not questioning. You should be questioning. Be careful with these areas in your life. If God is speaking to you, and he has shown you something through his word, and he has said, this is how I want you to live, live that way. You don't ever want to get to the place where you might have to question whether you're one of God's kids or not. But I guarantee you, these guys did because they're over there carving gods. They're setting them up in the corners of their house. They're not worshiping the true and the living God. They're doing everything but that. That's why James said that we are to be doers of the word, not just hearers only, because the hearers simply deceive themselves into thinking that, that maybe they're the child of grace. It is the works that actually bear, I will show you my faith, James said, by my works. I will actually do the things that God calls me to do. Now, I may not do them perfectly. You're not saved because you do do them. Nor were they necessarily lost because they had, you know, some image that they carved in there and they're just being knuckleheads. But the hardened heart has always been a dangerous thing and it remains so to this day. And to that end, If you use your head, you ought to find God. Verse 19. No one considers in his heart, nor is there knowledge, nor understanding to say, look, I burned half in the fire. And I've also used it to bake bread on the coals. This is like the wake-up call. And I'm sure some of you, please don't raise your hand. Some of you were in a situation to where you knew you were doing what God didn't want you to do. You were going the wrong direction, and you had that aha moment of, I am cooking my bread on the idol that I burned that I worship. You see it there? You have that moment where you wake up, the spiritual cognition goes on, the Holy Spirit's speaking to you, I am dumb as a hot rock right now. Notice what it says. Check it out. See it for yourself. Yes, I've also baked bread on its coals. I've roasted meat and eaten it. And I shall make the rest of it an abomination? Shall I fall down before a block of wood? That's the light going on, church. That's somebody under the conviction of the Holy Spirit going, God, forgive me. I am such a fool. Let me give you a little secret to Christian living right now. If sin bothers you, you're in a great place. If sin bothers you, you're in a great place. That means the Holy Spirit's still speaking to you. When you should be very afraid is when you know what the Bible says and you know it says not to do that and you persist in it anyway and then you go so far as to attempt to tell God, well, God's just going to have to take me the way I am. 
because that's not how the rules go. That's why I fear for people who are caught in same-sex attraction. Because the Bible is very, very, very specific on that issue. God can forgive any and all sin if we repent. But if we do not repent, the Bible nowhere teaches that he is going to accept your sin as if it didn't happen. If you want forgiveness, you have to repent. And if you don't repent, there isn't forgiveness for your sin. It's not automatic. That doesn't mean you have to name everything that you've ever done, but it means in your heart that you recognize that's wrong. I agree with God. You can't tell God, no, you have to change your mind. I know the word says that, but it doesn't say it for me. If that's you, if you're watching online, you hear this later, let me be very clear. That's not okay with God. And you're in very precarious standing with the Lord. Check your own heart. Have this type of a moment. Use your head. The prophet Isaiah is getting this perfectly correct. It's like an, you can see the aha of all of this. You talk about clarity and thinking. It's like, man, I'm going to worship a log? I'm going to worship my firewood? I'm going to worship the thing that I roast my dinner on instead of the true and the living God? You see, there's a logical way, and there's an illogical way to look at all things. The logical way is when you look at a tree, you might want to think a little deeper than just the tree, amen? It's like, you ever look? It's one of the mind-boggling things I think people here in California, especially in our state, which seems to be bent to go the wrong direction a lot, we, we have known for decades. I sat on the Forest Council for quite some time for the San Bernardino National Forest. I was an advisor to the U.S. Forest Service. One of the things that we figured out a long time ago, the reason all the trees were dying in the San Bernardino National Forest had nothing to do with drought. It had everything to do with forest management. We have been worshiping trees since the 1960s. And so it became illegal to cut down any trees. It became illegal to thin them. It became illegal to skirt them. It became illegal because trees had souls. We worship them. And so we leave all the trees. And when you live in a Mediterranean environment, whether you knew that or not, Southern California is exactly the same latitude, give or take a few degrees, as guess where? The Mediterranean. So we're not supposed to get as much rain here as you would get in the Pacific Northwest or on the equator, some tropical environment. And so because we worship trees, the trees became susceptible to bark beetles. The bark beetles feasted on the trees because there was not enough water. And because there was not enough water, we end up with this cycle of death of trees that causes massive wildfires, which is why we've got going on what we've got going on in our state. God knows because he created the trees. You know what God used to do all the time? Because can I give you a little secret? We didn't have fire service 100 years ago. What do you think happened when lightning lit a fire in the eastern Sierra? It burned until the snows put it out. What did it do? It caused the seeds to propagate on almost every conifer. 
It caused them to reseed. It thinned out the understory. And it caused all the trees to be skirted up because the fire burned along the ground instead of getting into the crown of the trees. Problem solved. You think God knew that? Sure he did. And so we, thinking we're wiser than God, we're going to worship the trees. We're going to save every tree. And so God said, no, that's not going to work. I'm going to burn your forest down anyway because that's what they need so they'll be healthy. God's very wise. He knows exactly what he's doing and he knows why he's doing it. And we should worship him. If we use our head, we find these things out. Mind-boggling that most conifers' cones don't split open until they're exposed to heat. So the seeds don't pop out, they don't germinate, unless there's a fire. That's why Paul said we worship and serve the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forevermore. There in Romans one twenty-five, And so this guy comes to that understanding. He's going, man, what am I doing? I trimmed the tree. I warmed myself. I, I roasted my meat. I baked my bread. And now I'm worshiping the same dumb tree. Notice where this goes. Verse 20. We can wrap this up fairly quickly. He feeds on ashes. A deceived heart has turned him aside. Cannot deliver his soul. He's talking about the idol. He's saying, look, I've been worshiping this hunk of wood and it can't do anything for my soul. Nor say, is there not a lie in my right hand? You know, God's not, <laughs> God doesn't buy your stuff. He knows exactly what you're saying and why you're saying it. He knows when it's not true. You might fool people, but you're not fooling God. Remember these, O Jacob and Israel, for you are my servant, for I have, here it comes again, I have formed you. I formed you. I made you. You're my servant. Israel, you'll not be forgotten by me. I've blotted out like a thick cloud your transgressions, a cloud your sins. Return to me, for I've redeemed you. See, here's the good news. All these other things that Isaiah saw and has said, is basically so we come to the right mindset to where we go, God's right, I'm wrong, I need to change, I need to turn from what I'm worshiping and turn towards him and worship him. And when I do that, God's going, great. That's what I want. I want to blot out your transgressions. I want to forgive your sin. I have redeemed you. And then the song that comes with it, Sing, O heavens, for the Lord has done it. Shout, lower parts of the earth, and break forth into singing, you mountains, O forest, and every tree on it. For the Lord has redeemed Jacob and glorified himself in Israel. For thus says the Lord, your Redeemer, he who formed you from the womb. He repeats it. He says, look, I've known who you are the whole time. When you were busy playing with Legos, I knew you. When you were trying to figure out that puberty thing when you were 11, I knew exactly what was going on. I had a plan for all of that. Now, why am I saying that? Because we think that no one has ever gone through what we're going through, and so we think we're the only ones who have ever gone through those kind of things, and so we start looking for answers as if our situation is different. God couldn't know me. God knows you. 
He formed you. After you were created, he's been shaping and molding and putting you on the potter's wheel and spinning off the rough edges and smoothing out things and making you, you. And me, me. I am the Lord who makes all things, who stretches out the heavens all alone, who spreads abroad the earth myself, who frustrates the signs of the babblers and drives diviners mad, who turns wise men backwards and makes foolishness the knowledge of them. I love this. You know, God knows a few things that we don't, amen? It's so weird. If you ever want to really have some fun, study laws that were, you know, like 100, 150 years ago. You don't have to go back very far. You don't need to go back to the ancient world. Just go back to the 1850s. That's a, that's a good place. And look at some of the things that we thought at that time, especially in medical science. This is, did you know that bathtubs, when they were first created, were believed to actually cause disease? And they were nearly outlawed in the United States of America because they believed that if you took baths too often, you would suffer from all kinds of mental issues. That you would literally be unclean from being clean. That's what we thought 150 years ago. For those of you that are here and you're in the nursing profession, there was a theory in the 1850s called miasma. And basically it was believed that if you got certain smells in your nostrils, that, that this obsolete medical theory, you might get cholera or chlamydia or black death or all kinds of... This is the 1850s. If you read the history of Florence Nightingale, supposedly the, the inventor of modern nursing, that was what she was fighting against. She figured out that you, need, you actually needed to be clean. That was the problem. It wasn't just the smells of the battlefield. It wasn't the stench of living in that world at that time. You know, we haven't been as bright as we are now for very long at all. Our, our knowledge has increased so radically. Airline travel, when I was born, was still in prop planes. Think of that one. Generally speaking, we've been to the moon and back. Well, not according to some people. That was done in Houston in a hangar, but... Professing themselves to be wise, Paul said, they became fools. Psalm 14 says, a fool hath said in his heart, there is no God. Oh, there's a God, and he's way smarter than we are. And so God is now going to call Cyrus by name, verse 26, who confirms the word of his servant and performs the counsel of his messengers, who says to Jerusalem, you shall be inhabited, to the cities of Judah you shall be built. I will raise up her waste places. Who says to the deep, be dry? I will dry up the rivers. Who says of Cyrus? These words are spoken 185 years before Cyrus is born and 150 years before he comes on the scene and actually does what we find recorded 
in the book of Daniel. He is my shepherd. He shall perform all my pleasure, saying to Jerusalem, you shall be built, and to the temple your foundation shall be laid. We're going to find that it is in fact Cyrus the Mede, an enemy of the Jewish people, I might add. A shepherd, in the sense he's going to do God's bidding, is going to be the one who causes the children of Israel to be sent back to rebuild the temple and to be, rebuild the city. God says that before it happens. Can you imagine the Jewish people reading the words of the prophet Isaiah as they go back to Jerusalem? They're like, oh my. God told us this was going to happen. He told us who the king would be of an unknown people group at the time, I might add. The Medes were not a powerful force. In fact, they did not exist. It was Media Persia when it finally came on the scene. It would remain Persia until 1979, when the Shah of Iran finally changes the name to Iran instead of Persia. It was Persia until 1979. There is one Lord. There is one true God. He's the one that's forming. This is a message throughout the remainder of the book of Isaiah. It's the promise to the Jewish people. It's the promise to every believer that the one who thirsts, hungers for righteousness will come and drink. And as the scriptures say, living waters will fill that person's soul. And so this passage reminds us God has a plan. We've been fashioned by him. He knows our days. He knows our coming and going, our rising up and sitting down. And so when you're feeling down, you're feeling low, just remember who he is and what he does and why he does it. He'll never leave you. He'll never forsake you. He's there before you were, and he'll be there long after this world is rolled up like a scroll. Amen? And so rest in that. And tell the world about him. That's why you're here. Amen? Father, we thank you that you are the one who fashioned us, you formed us, you made us, and you made us in your image. You made us in your likeness. You put your spirit upon us, and ultimately, as we believed, you put your spirit in us. And so, Lord, we do worship you. Don't let us worship false gods. Not money, not power, not passion, not possessions. Lord, not the things of this life, not those things which could easily cause us to stray. Help us to worship you and you alone. Lord, thank you for loving us. We ask all this in the mighty name of our Savior, Jesus. Amen. Thanks for listening, and we hope you were encouraged by today's message. If you have any questions or just want to check us out, make sure to visit us at ccsouthbay.org. God bless you guys, and we'll see you next week.